Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm Ian Owens. Today's episode comes just three weeks before the start of the 19th IISS Shangri-La Dialogue, Asia's premier defense summit, which will be held on the 4th and 5th of June in Singapore. We're therefore going to take a step back and look at the trends and developments that have shaped this region's security and political dynamics in the past year. And there's no shortage of topics to explore. Hybrid warfare in the South China Sea and intensified air incursions across the Taiwan Strait continue to heighten tensions in the region's maritime space, while other developments such as the COVID-19 pandemic have reinforced ongoing dynamics, namely the continued great power competition between the U.S. and China. To discuss recent political, military, and economic trends in the Asia-Pacific, I'm delighted to welcome the new Executive Director of the IISS Asia Office in Singapore, James Crabtree. In addition to leading the IISS Asia Office and growing IISS research team in Singapore, James plays a leading role in organizing the annual IISS Shangri-La Dialogue and the IISS Fullerton Forum, as well as the IISS Fullerton Lecture Series. Prior to joining the IISS, James was a Singapore-based author and journalist and an associate professor of practice at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in Singapore. He is the author of the 2018 best-selling book, The Billionaire Raj, A Journey Through India's New Gilded Age, which was shortlisted for the Financial Times McKinsey Book of the Year. Prior to his academic posting, James worked for the Financial Times, most recently as Mumbai bureau chief, and has written a wide range of global publications. He's worked as a senior policy advisor in the UK Prime Minister's Strategy Unit under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, and he was educated at Harvard and the London School of Economics. Welcome to the Institute and to the podcast, James. Thank you very much, man. It's lovely to be here. So as mentioned in the introduction, we are three weeks away from the 19th Shangri-La Dialogue, where Japanese Prime Minister Yoshihide Suga will give a keynote speech, and where defense ministers from across and beyond the region will meet to discuss regional security dynamics. What's the mood ahead of this year's dialogue, do you think? I think the mood ahead of the dialogue is good. Um, for your listeners who aren't familiar with the IISS Shangri-La Dialogue, as you say, it's Asia's premier security conference. And so it's the biggest and most important gathering uh, of its kind, where you have defense ministers from, from Asia, from China, from Japan, from ASEAN, but also from the United States, from Europe, and from other countries around the world. Um, I think this is a particularly important dialogue uh, last year, the dialogue wasn't convened because of COVID. And so the, the Shangri-La dialogue this year is, I, in many respects, the most significant gathering in the security sphere that has happened in Asia um, since the beginning of COVID. Um, it's a big event. It is happening in person. Um, and so that's significant for two respects, because it heralds here in Singapore the return of face-to-face -face diplomacy after a period in which a lot of diplomacy has been happening virtually. Uh, but it's also happening after a, a long gap where, where you know, people in the world of security haven't been able to meet one another, and there's a lot to discuss. Um, you have the context of the US and China. You have the context of the ongoing pandemic and the recovery from it. Uh, you have a whole range of other issues that I think we're going to talk about in this podcast. So I think people are really looking forward to the the gathering. And, and in a sense, that's why the response to it has been so strong and why uh, at the moment, not only the keynote speaker that you've talked about, but 
um, we've had a, a very strong response in terms of the the speakers and participants that we're expecting to have there. And I think that shows that there's a kind of pent up demand to meet in person after such a long time when everyone's been cooped up in their national capitals and is fed up with Zoom calls. And, and so in a sense, we're, we're in the beginnings of getting back to the kind of diplomacy that an organization like the IISS facilitates. Now, you've lived in and studied the Asia-Pacific region for a number of years, from your years as an advisor to the British government and as the head of the Financial Times Bureau in Mumbai, and of course as an academic researcher more recently in Singapore. So what are the key trends that you've seen in the region, whether military, politically, or economically, that you think might um, become key discussion points at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue? Well, I think the big and most important one is the competition between the US and China and how that is reshaping the region. An awful lot has happened in the two years since we last had a Shangri-La dialogue. And so that has all sorts of um, important ramifications uh, in the context of uh, Xi Jinping's um, movements, but also the arrival of the Biden administration and what the U.S. is trying to do as a, as a new actor that is changing U.S. policy. That then has second-order ramifications for a number of our very important um, sort of delegate groupings, and I'll highlight two that we might go on to talk about. One is the Southeast Asian nations themselves, who are you know, trying to respond to the changing environment around them um, don't particularly want to have to choose between either the United States and China, want to try and find a modus operandi that works. And then on the, the, the extra one is the European nations. So um, we have the United Kingdom, Germany and France as the big three European nations all represented at Shangri-La and all in their own way, along with the European Union itself, trying to craft more of a, of a role for themselves in different respects in Asia. Um, and so uh, as they try and earn a seat at the table, um, uh, uh, they're also, people are going to be watching to see what they say. So I think there's a lot to be said about the geopolitical dynamics. And then, of course, all of this is happening within the context of COVID. And so COVID itself, the COVID recovery, the way in which COVID has changed security dynamics, and changed the, the fortunes of particular actors. Some countries have done very well, some have done poorly, some have been affected in different ways. So I think, you know, there's a lot that's happening um, you know, if you look down the line of the dialogue in, in terms of the sessions that we have, there are other issues that are important as well that will be covered. So the rise of uh, cyber and new technologies and the way that that's affecting security is a big one. Uh, human security and climate change, which um, once we get through the pandemic, that's going to become uh, one, if not the most important global issue that, that people are going to be working on. And so the Shangri-La Dialogue covers a whole range of these thematic issues. But I think at base, the thing that people are interested in is the balance between the U.S. and China and then how that, um, that, how that reflects on, on other participants in the region, both those who are here in Southeast Asia and also those in other parts of the world who want to be part of this discussion in, in Asia about the future of Asian security. I mean, of course, we see a lot of this through the U.S.-China lens, but there are other intra-regional challenges at play as well, right? It's true to say that the U.S.-China relationship is... Um, a complicating factor in a lot of um, regional discussions, and then there are there are some particular issues that that aren't best seen that way. So you know there are issues like Myanmar going on in the background at the moment. Um, there's North Korea, which tends to pop up in one form or another. Uh, Taiwan, uh, I suppose, is probably mostly seen through a U.S.-China lens. There's a whole range of issues that will come up at the dialogue and which different defense ministers are going to talk about. Um, but I think if you're looking at the top line, um, then 
really you're looking at the way that the um, the two great powers are are talking to one another, and then how the other countries are are fitting themselves into into that. Whether those are the Europeans or ASEAN that I mentioned, or perhaps some of those who are you know more closely aligned to one or other of the great powers. So one might look at Japan or Australia or India uh, on the U.S. side, or or some of the ASEAN countries that have very strong relationships with China um, that that might um, that might come on the other side. So in recent years at Shangri-La Dialogues, we've discussed a lot uh, about the topic of regional security architectures, um, whether regional political and security architectures um, are sufficient uh, in their existing formats, whether alternatives should be created or whether existing frameworks need to be adjusted somewhat to respond to the challenges uh, that that we see uh, playing out in the region today. Um, to what extent will this be a topic of discussion at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue? I think this underlies everything that happens at the Shangri-La Dialogue, and it's a, it's an interesting and delicate dance. So if you look, for instance, at the role that the Americans play in the Shangri-La Dialogue, there tends to be a similar theme that the American Defense Secretary, who speaks uh, uh, after the keynote speaker and in, in the, the opening plenary, it tends to have quite a similar theme, which is the Americans want to reassure uh, their partners and allies in Asia that the United States um, remains focused, is deploying resources to Asia, is here to stay, is a partner in the region, and then they talk about particular particular challenges. However, at the moment, this has become more complicated because. On the one hand, the U.S. is trying to strike a more robust attitude towards China. That was true under Mr. Trump in, a, in an erratic way and under Mr. Biden, perhaps in a more, more balanced way. But nonetheless, the early months of the Biden administration, there's little sign that, that Biden is going to be anything other than, than promoting a, a mode of competition with China. However, when you come to the Shangri-La Dialogue, you're landed in Singapore and, and you're surrounded by Southeast Asian nations. And... ASEAN as being the, the kind of principal block in this part of the world, members of ASEAN get a little bit nervous in a world where we're talking about great power competition with uh, the US and the Quad on the one hand and China on the other. And so leaders and defense ministers who come to Southeast Asia tend to have to strike a quite delicate balance um, in terms of the way in which they're talking about their own objectives. So in the Americans' case, competing with China across many domains and working with their allies, but also being respectful to uh, the Southeast Asian nations who who want to hear that ASEAN is the, the way in which um, issues affecting Southeast Asia are going to be dealt with. And so ASEAN in particular has come through a difficult period. I mean, the COVID, I think, was a tough period for ASEAN because ASEAN itself wasn't able to do very much about COVID insofar as there was COVID action happening regionally. It happened on a pretty much a bilateral basis. And then Myanmar um, has also shown that to some degree, uh, ASEAN has limited capacity to act. It has latterly come up with an agreement um, to try and move forward that was brokered principally by the Indonesians working with some others. But nonetheless, you know, ASEAN is in a, is in a position where its role is perhaps even more under question than it is normally. And that's partly simply because there's a lot of movement in the world of the, you know, the competition between the US and China and its allies. And you have the Quad and the Europeans arriving and 
all sorts of things are going on, but you've also had some some things happening in the background that have led people to question ASEAN's effectiveness. And so I think that's a, it's an interesting dynamic to look at throughout the dialogue. What do the Southeast Asian countries say about their own role in the region and what they want from the great powers and what they want from ASEAN? And how do the outside powers, particularly those that are skeptical of China, so the US, the Europeans, the Australians, the Japanese, how do they strike this balance between uh, being respectful to ASEAN, but also the reality of the fact that there's a lot going on in this region, which isn't happening within an ASEAN framework, and the Quad is only one example. You've mentioned that people question the effectiveness of policy of ASEAN centrality uh, and and the institution itself. Who are those people? Do you mean extra-regional powers or or powers within the region? I think mostly the questioning of ASEAN happens uh, outside of the region. Um, and so people are critical of ASEAN's role. They, ASEAN is excessively consensual. Um, this is what people would say. Within the region, uh, people tend not to be that critical of ASEAN, although you do get some voices who have begun to broach this subject. So, for instance, here in Singapore, at Poro, I might point to somebody like Bilahari Kausikan, who's a former diplomat and quite an outspoken figure. He, not that long ago, went public with the idea that ASEAN was becoming too divided um, because some of its members were uh, uh, too close to China, basically. And so he floated the idea that um, Laos and Cambodia, who are the two countries who are most traditionally seen to be close to China, might, under some circumstances, be kicked out of ASEAN. I mean, that's a very fringe view that, that no one in the mainstream would think of, but it does show that there remains an active debate within ASEAN itself about the bloc and this delicate tension between consensus and bringing everybody along for the ride, which has been the traditional um, kind of principle of ASEAN. You know, it's not like the European Union where you have a central executive and qualified majority voting, and and if you don't like it, then you don't have much, you know. So it's a different kind of body. But then the question of, well, what is it that we want ASEAN to do? Do we want it to take action on Myanmar? Do we want it to play this role or that role or the other? So you do see, a debate about ASEAN within the region, it just tends to be a little bit more muted. It often, I think, is people from outside. However, you know, just one more thing to add to that, it is also true that there are, as Asia becomes much more central in uh, global uh, calculations, strategic calculations, actually there's outside powers who are at once sometimes critical of ASEAN in private, but also courting ASEAN in public. The United Kingdom would be a good example. In the aftermath of Brexit, one of Britain's core um, public policy goals in Southeast Asia has been to achieve uh, what is called dialogue partner status with ASEAN, which it has done. It's just managed to do this. And they also want to get a place within a particular ASEAN defense ministers grouping, which they've not managed to do. Um, but, But as countries outside Asia try to gain more of a role within these Asian security frameworks that you talked about in your original question, then actually they're trying to be, be more engaged with institutions like ASEAN, not less. What's the mood in ASEAN at the moment on the South China Sea Code of Conduct with China, given all that we've seen uh, around the Whitsun Reef recently in terms of the use of maritime militia and hybrid actions? I think reasonably subdued. Um, if you were to think back to thinking about the South China Sea um, three or four years ago in the aftermath of the, the Hague ruling, there was a period in which some of the ASEAN nations were quite vocal 
um, about pushing back on Chinese claims, particularly those uh, historically that have had testy relationships with China. So Vietnam being the most obvious one, but also the Philippines and actually Singapore also spoke out uh, on that issue. You don't tend to see that very much um, nowadays. So the, the debate about this has become more muted within ASEAN, albeit not without it. But you do see occasional kind of flashes of light. Last week or the week before, uh, the foreign minister of the Philippines uh, actually launched an expletive-laden tirade on Twitter that was sort of quite something to see um, about China. And so the, the, the Philippines is an interesting case. It's the most high profile of the, the kind of claimant states. It also happens to be where the, the current um, kind of contretemps between China and the Philippines, you know, that, that, that's what people are focusing on. And there's clearly a big debate happening within the Philippines elite as to how the Philippines should manage this. And on any given day, you know, one side of it or the other could emerge. So Mr. Duterte tends to be quite pliant towards China um, and, and has, has uh, had a strategy of, you know, quite, quite quietly trying to manage things while being nice to China in public. And there are clearly others within his government who want to take a much harder line. And so I think, as is often the case in Southeast Asia, there are live debates, strategic debates that are happening within national capitals. It's just that, unlike in some other parts of the world, they, they're more often happening in private, and then you see peaks of them coming out in public. So it's a different kind of public discourse that happens in this part of the world often. Now, you already mentioned the Quad, and of course, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue has seen somewhat of a revival under the Trump and Biden administrations. You've covered India on the ground, of course, during your work there, and um, India is an important topic and participant of the IISS Shangri-La Dialogues. How should we understand the role that India can play and is willing to play in the Quad and wider regional security? So I think India aspires and will play a much greater role in regional security. It's starting from a low base as a country that is still economically uh, at best lower middle income recently emerged from a poor economy status. Um, and which by heritage hasn't played a huge role outside of its immediate border. But it, it's clear that India is heading on a path now to playing a much more significant regional security role, starting within the Indian Ocean area, but extending more broadly. Um, so I think that's the first thing to say that over a, you know, over a half century or more, there's, you know, India is going to play a much, much greater role. In the Quad, in particular, India has traditionally been seen as the the kind of the slowest ship in the convoy. It, 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 um, I mean, some people dispute this, particularly in India, but that's generally the perception that that India has been the the break because it has been the country that has not wanted to offend China. I mean, I'm not sure if that's actually that accurate anymore. Um, certainly, the most significant geopolitical shift that has happened anywhere in the world, I think, over the, the last year year and a half, has been the rapid movement of India from a kind of skeptical balancing position on China to one that is much more full-throatedly skeptical in the aftermath of um, the, the, the clashes that happened in the Himalayas. And, and so I think we can argue the toss about the strategic rationale from the Chinese point of view, but the change in Indian elite and public opinion has been very dramatic. And it is that that has unlocked the the movement in the Quad. Um, previously, the Americans and the Japanese were very keen to have the Quad do more in various respects, and the limiting factor did tend to be either the Australians or the Indians. Um, but now both the Australians and the Indians, for slightly different reasons related to China, are now much more willing to 
go along with or, or to kind of develop uh, the Quad as a balance to China. And you also have on the American side just a, a much more an administration that is much more instinctively multilateralist, but also I think in some ways more imaginative. And so, for instance, you saw uh, led, I, I think most people assume by Kurt Campbell, the, the NSA Asia czar, um, a, a move by the Quad to get into the politics of vaccine distribution, which happened about six weeks ago. It was pretty well received. So the Quad said that they were going to make vaccines in India. These would be funded by the other three countries and they would give them to Southeast Asia. This was quite outside the sort of things that the Quad has done before. I mean, the Quad is, in any case, a, a, there's a lot of talk about it, but it's a, you know, it's an idea that is always in development, but it certainly has never done anything quite like this before. The question now is, well, what does it do next? Um, are we going to see a Quad that is primarily military and, and which is trying to deepen military relationships, or is the Quad going to begin with vaccines and end up in infrastructure and the regulation of artificial intelligence. And, you know, there are all sorts of things that these countries could try and do. But I think it's it's clear that, that uh, India's role as a break on the quad, that break has certainly been lifted. And it may no longer be accurate to say that, you know, in, India is somehow a, um, a, the, the sort of the slowest mover. There's an open question now, I think, a really open question about what the quad is going to do next. And, and what sorts of problems the Quad is going to try and solve that will win it legitimacy around around Asia. Because if the Quad turns into or a kind of proto rough equivalent of NATO, which is what some people call it, the Chinese sort of accuse the Quad of being a kind of Southeast Asian, Asian NATO in the making. If that's what the Quad amounts to, um, or that's what the aim is, then that's something that will make Southeast Asian nations very nervous because they don't want uh, to move in a direction in which you have a much more confrontational posture between China and this um, loose alliance of China skeptic nations. So I think it's a very live question as to the future direction of the Quad and India's role within it. And that's also something that will be watched carefully to see, for instance, at the Shangri-La Dialogue, does American Defense Secretary Austin, how prominently does he talk about the Quad? What does he think it's going to be doing in particular, bearing in mind that whenever you talk about the Quad, there's a certain constituency within Southeast Asia which gets quite nervous. Um, and so do they play that up? Do they play it down? I, I think there's a lot of interesting things to watch for there. I mean, I think the Indian response to the clashes between India and Chinese troops along the disputed border last summer also signals a wider definition of security these days to include technology. India, following those clashes, uh, banned 50 Chinese apps uh, within India and has since banned more and has taken a, a stronger stance on the use of Chinese technology and its 5G networks. Um, so how do you think these technologies around bifurcation of the internet or, or the digital ecosystem and technological competition more broadly will play out in SLD this year? At the Shangri-La Dialogue, we have one of the plenary sessions. There are six plenary sessions where ministers speak, and one of them is about cyber artificial intelligence and the future of warfare. So there will be some element of this, although I, I think what, what you're more talking about is the broader field of geoeconomic competition, which encompasses um, everything from infrastructure through to uh, semiconductors, through to supply chains. I think some of this will come up at the Shangri-La Dialogue, although Traditionally, it hasn't been 
um, a forum where geoeconomics is at the center of the discussion compared to the, the more core security military topics. But I think this is part of a wider process in which strategic competition in this part of the world is, is no longer solely the result of the forte of the military. And therefore, anyone who's trying to manage these competition, this type of competition, it, it happens over many different domains at once. And so some of those are military and technological, which is, um, you, you can look at all sorts of things from autonomous systems to um, you know, a range of others, um, but it's also economic and technological. And so a large focus of the competition between the US and China has occurred over Huawei, for instance, or about the movement of supply chains. So I, I think this is going to come up in, in the background. Where India fits into this is, is an interesting piece because India would like to be the beneficiary of some of these changes. It would like to be the place where the Western economies put some of the supply chains that they're moving out of India. It would like to develop itself both as a military and economic sort of tech superpower. It has many assets in this respect. Um, but as is often the case with India, uh, it also has limitations on how these assets are going to be are going to be used. So, uh, I, I mean, in, in India is always a case of um, you know great possibilities, but but to some degree unfulfilled expectations. And and so, um, it would be interesting to see how how that that pans out over the course of the dialogue. You've already mentioned the United States, and of course, under a Biden administration, we've seen somewhat more continuity than change in the U.S.'s policy towards China so far. What's the view from the region uh, with regards to U.S. competition, U.S.-China competition, and what do countries want to see from a Biden administration, do you think, going forward? I think the view from the region is always somewhat um, divided because there, there are two things that most nations in Southeast Asia, I think, want to hear from the United States, uh, one of which is you're going to stick around. Um, most nations in Southeast Asia do not want the US to leave because at a very basic level, if the US packed up and went home and said, we're only going to play in the Western Hemisphere, then then you leave most of Southeast Asia to a future that um, is hegemonic for China uh, until India um, becomes sort of sufficiently powerful. And that's a kind of theoretically, it's quite far in the future. So in the Trump years, there was always a fear that, that Trump might suddenly decide to cut some sort of deal here or there and that he was fundamentally at heart an isolationist. I, I think under the Biden administration, people recognize that you know, the US is back to a more traditional posture, one that values its alliance structure. Nonetheless, there are doubts about um, the Biden administration in a number of respects. The first is if you're on the China skeptic side of the calculus, if you're from Japan, Australia, bits of the Philippines, Vietnam, India, you know, you wonder, is Biden's heart really in this? Uh, is he really going to compete with China or is he going to do more cooperation on areas that he cares about, particularly, for instance, climate change? So that's a, a hanging question. Although one, I think that the US has done a good deal to reassure doubters of before Biden's election, I think much more than would have been realized in most Western capitals. Um, there was quite a deal of skepticism in Asia about Biden, and people were actually more sympathetic towards Trump than you, you might have imagined. Um, but I think Biden has has reassured on 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 that. So so yes, I think that that's sort of the balance. Um, is the U.S. going to stick around? Is it going to be 
for those countries who are um, worried about China? Is it going to be tough? And is it going to put its money where its mouth is? Um, you know, it's fine enough to talk about competition with China, but in the end, China is engaged in a massive uh, military, particularly naval buildup of the sort that the IISS details in its research, particularly our recent military balance publication, the flagship of the Institute, which you know, tells you how unprecedentedly rapid the buildup of the, the PLA is in terms of, of ships. Uh, in particular, it's something I know, Mayor, you know a lot about. And so is the U.S. in terms of its force posture, the way that it's behaving in the region, the way it's preparing for contingencies like Chinese action over Taiwan in the, you know, the, the medium term, uh, the way it's trying to defend itself um, in light of technological advances like hypersonic missiles. There's a whole range of things that the IISS covers that I think people are, are interested to know how is the US adapting. So, so that's the sort of the basic balance. On the one hand, countries in Southeast Asia and in Asia want to know that the US is here, part of the region it's here to stay, but they also don't want the US to start creating trouble. And this is the kind of the kind of crux of the, the dilemma that they don't want the US to leave, but they also don't want the US coming in and creating instability. That was the worry under the Trump years that in a sense, Trump embodied both of these dangers. On the one hand, he might skip out of town at any moment, but if he was going to engage, he might make things worse. And so that's a very delicate balance for the Americans to be at once reassuring to telegraph to those who need to hear it that they're going to be tough on China, but to telegraph to those who are worried about disturbances that, that they're not going to um, do anything too untoward. And, and so that is the task that faces the American Defense Secretary when they come to Asia, which is to, to hit these various notes of reassurance, toughness, but not bringing instability. And that is the difference between a good Shangri-La sort of speech from the U.S. Defense Secretary and a bad one. We'll look forward to those plenaries. I wanted to talk, lastly, a little bit about powers from outside the region, notably European powers who have increasingly shown interest in becoming more engaged uh, with the Indo-Pacific region. Now, we've seen the U.K., Germany, the Netherlands, and the European External Action Service publish Indo-Pacific strategies recently. The Netherlands and the United States will join the Royal Navy on HMS Queen Elizabeth's maiden voyage to the region this year. How is the concept of the Indo-Pacific viewed within the region? And how do you think regional powers view European countries who have published Indo-Pacific strategies and want to become more involved? I think it's a balanced view. It depends from the perspective that you're looking. So I think China and China's friends view this pretty negatively and pretty clear from the Chinese response that, that they think that these are non-Asian powers, particularly previously imperial powers coming back into the region and trying to meddle and, and they don't think this is a very good idea. In Southeast Asia, there's probably a, a, a balanced approach that on the one hand, um, many countries see this sort of probably helpful in terms of creating more of a balance of power in the region. Those countries that want the US to stay, you know, can conceive that there might be something helpful that the United Kingdom or Germany or France could do. These countries bring particular capabilities. They're very good at, for instance, cyber is an area where, where these countries um, tend to be have, have lots of assets and capabilities. And so they might look at the UK and say, okay, well, maybe you can be useful um, in something that I'm trying to do in this particular domain. 
But I think there are two issues that all of these powers have to grapple with, one of which is one of fundamental legitimacy, as in also how are you explaining the role that you have in this region and why? What is it that you're bringing to the party? So, so clearly you want to have a seat at the table in our region because Asia is becoming the center of global geopolitical competition. And so you want a piece of that, but, but why? Give us a good reason why we should listen to you. What are you bringing? What, what, how are you helping to make our region more stable? How are you helping us do things that we didn't want to do before? What's your legitimacy? And so that's a constant challenge for these outside powers now. Slightly less so for France, I think, because um, it does style itself as an Indo-Pacific power because it, it has a you know, collection of islands and a larger exclusive economic zone and a longer heritage. But you know, all of these countries... Um, particularly the UK and France have colonial legacies in this part of the world that is complicated. Um, and, and, and so that, that's one thing. And I suppose the second is the same with the Americans, albeit at a smaller stage, which is fine. You know, you've written a strategy. That's fine. Anyone can put out a 60 page document with some nice warm words in it. But where's the beef? You know, are you actually spending more money here or are you just coming into our region to create trouble with the Chinese? Um, by you know driving your ships through the South China Sea and making our life more difficult, and so that I think is what people are looking for. That you know the strategies are fine. You know you'll find people who think the Europeans should tend to their own backyards, and you'll find that in Washington as well. There are actually plenty of skeptics in Washington who think the Brits and the French and the Germans should stay out of Asia and leave this to the Americans, and you know they should stay at home and focus on North Atlantic security, worry about the Russians, and you know leave Asia leave Asia to the big boys. I think you know, that, that view is perhaps not widely shared in Asia. It's more a case of you know, what, do, what are you going to do for us? Well, and, and are you really going to resource this properly? Um, you know, if Britain is planning a tilt to Asia, is there actually money behind this? Um, or is this just a, a kind of you know, empty set of rhetoric that in the end will not amount to any much? So I think there's the potential for these countries to find a role within the region. They are economically important, they're militarily important, but I think there's a lot of questions remaining about how serious they are and how they're going to justify this and what they're going to actually do that will add to the security of the region as opposed to detract from it. So we've talked a lot about challenges in the region, but I'd also like to talk about opportunities. What opportunities do you see in the near term to address some of the challenges that we've talked about today? I think there's opportunities at two levels. One of which is the regional security architecture itself, which is clearly in flux. I mean, often people say ASEAN doesn't have, or rather sort of Asia doesn't have a security architecture, but of course it does. It, it's just not a simple one. It's overlapping and complicated. It involves some groupings like ASEAN, some informal groupings like the Quad, some summitry. You know, there is a, an architecture. It's just sort of complicated and difficult. But it's clearly evolving. I mean, the role that the Quad is playing is one example, but we've seen quite a lot of innovation in regional organizations, some which touch on the security sphere, even in the aftermath of COVID. So, for instance, you've seen alliances of some nations to do with supply chain resilience. You've seen others that are high-tech nations dealing with climate. There's a, there's a, it's a period of institutional innovation um, with Asia at its heart. You see this in trade as well, where there are now two dominant trade agreements um, in the region, the, the CPTPP, the formerly American-led uh, more advanced grouping. Um, and then there's another which, um, which links China to ASEAN and, and other countries. So there, there's an opportunity, I think, to develop in new ways the regional security architecture as a whole, 
uh, given the fast-changing context within the great powers. And then there's particular kind of thematic opportunities. So COVID recovery is an obvious one where clearly there has been a massive deficit in international cooperation um, in the aftermath of COVID-19 that has led to a suboptimal policy response in all sorts of different ways. I think anyone can see that. But there's a whole range of emerging issues um, that are not really being well dealt with. And that, that runs the gamut from some of the things we've talked about here, the supply chain resilience, uh, climate change in the run-up to the the, the Glasgow summit in the United Kingdom, but emerging technology regulation, the regulation of artificial intelligence, the military sphere, the regulation of autonomous systems. You know, there's a list as long of your as long as your arm of problems that are waiting to be solved if countries can find a way of coming together and talking to each other. Um, and, and so I think, you know, although a, a meeting like the Shangri-La Dialogue is not going to solve any of these in and of itself, it does put a premium on uh, opportunities for diplomacy um, in which countries can come together, potentially new formations, new kind of partnerships can occur. And some of these many problems that the world is facing uh, can be can be moved forward. So I think uh, I think you can be optimistic about that um, in some respects. There certainly is um, a great space out there for institutional innovation um, in the Asia-Pacific region. And there are an awful lot of problems that need solving. And so countries that want to play a bigger role in the region, you know, including the United States, which wants to is, is an established power in the region that wants to play a bigger role, but also some of the ASEAN countries as they grow into more significant regional players like, like Indonesia or even some of the European countries coming in from outside that want to play a bigger role, there are an awful lot of problems that people can look at and think, well, can we begin to solve this? And I think that's the kind of constructive sort of diplomacy that, that we at the IISS hope will play a part in. Well, I'm going to end on that positive and hopeful note. I want to thank you for coming on the podcast, and we look forward to the 19th IISS Shangri-La Dialogue taking place next month, and of course, to having you on the podcast again soon, James. Very good. Thank you, Mayor. I'm a big fan of Sound Strategic, so it's been a delight to be on here and a delight to be part of the Institute. So many thanks for that, and I look forward to hearing you on future episodes. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep up to date with all the latest episodes. And for more in-depth analysis of the key international security and defense issues from around the world, be sure to follow the IISS on Twitter, LinkedIn, or visit the IISS website. Thank you and see you next time.